Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast, concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know that this is your most important event. It is their goal to make you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist at PLSN Magazine, uh, LD at Large. I hope you're all enjoying the back page. I am stuck in self-isolation yet again. So in order to pass the time, I thought I would reach out to my very good friend, Andy Cass of C2 Design and Drafting out of Colorado. Thank you so much for making the time, Andy. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. I am watching my Facebook feed explode with lots of videos from the Ayrton Boredom Buster. And one of them that I especially enjoy is yours. I, I hope you enjoyed taking the time to do that. I did. Thank you. Uh, I started, it took me about a week and I was looking for something to get my, uh, get my brain on track at the beginning of quarantine here. Um, and when I saw the competition, I thought that that was the perfect place. And I've always been an Airton guy. I've used I've used every Airton fixture that I can think of, except for maybe some of the new LED spots. But I've always been an Airton guy. So yeah, you're one of the you were one of the leaders in the Cosmo Picks field. I I took I made a little list here before we got started. So I've used Cosmo Picks, Alien Picks, Dream Panel, Magic Blade, Magic Burst, Magic Dot, Magic Panel, Versa Picks, and Nando Beam. You're like a wizard with all that magic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I really, I, I really, especially Alien Picks, which I used for quite a while, I really used it because I was looking for a challenge and something that I thought was going to be really different than other fixtures out there. When, when the Alien Picks came out, um, there weren't very many profiles for it. There weren't MA3D profiles for it. There weren't capture profiles for it. So I worked with the Airton team a little bit on making sure that the profiles were correct and working properly in 3D to get started. We appreciate all your assistance. It takes a lot of those, it takes a lot of work to put together the best profile for those multi-instance fixtures. Yeah, especially Alien Picks, which I think has, let me think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight continuous rotation options. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I think seven different pan and tilt options. So, yeah. I was uh, I was on a video chat with one of the guys uh, from Airton who I think was in France at the time, and we were holding up a piece of paper and rotating it to talk about the various X, Y, and Z options of how this fixture worked to kind of make sure that we had the profile built properly at the time. And I was working with Capture on making it look good in 3D. It's uh, it takes a special person to have that sort of patience to work on the real intricacies of these fixtures when they get so in depth. There's so much to to figure out as to how the profile is going to look, who's going to like it to be different ways, uh, the categorization, the organization, 
and then definitely the how they how that all translates to 3D and how accurate you can get. For me, of- if a fixture doesn't work properly in 3D, I basically can't use it because so much of my workflow is based off 3D. Yeah, so that's something that's relatively new to our industry is how, the the importance of previs. It used to be kind of a luxury, and it's quickly becoming a necessity. Yeah, I would I would argue that one of the reasons that Grand MA has taken such a hold in our industry and is such a large percentage was because of their inclusion of the MA3D software and the fact that it was free. I've been doing this for like 20 years or so. And right from the beginning, I always thought that this was the opportunity to learn without having to have the fixtures in the rig in front of me. I'm the type of learner that I have to do the things myself. I have trouble sitting there and just listening or watching somebody else do something and and having it actually enter and having me understand it. So for me, and I think for a lot of people, the ability to be able to use MA3D for free early on gives you the opportunity to kind of grow, figure things out on your own, learn on your own at your own pace. And I think that really led to a lot of users choosing the MA early in their career over some of the other consoles. Most of the MA guys that I know, you know, they started with one computer running MA3D and on PC on the same thing, and you patch a fixture and you go from there. And I think that has been a great equalizer in our industry of small LDs being able to show what they can do with real rigs before you ever have to, to get a real light rig in person, you know, um, especially when you're small and you don't have. You don't have days and days and days of pre-programming at some venue, you know. Um, it really allowed people to figure out what they were going to want to do, have an artistic vision, and do it at a reasonable price point before, you know, visualizers used to cost a lot of money. Now the price points are much more reasonable, and MA3D being free really kind of opened the doors for a lot of people, I think. I fully agree with that. And one of the things that's been a, a huge benefit to us right now is that we don't have access to rigs right now. Right. And hence yeah. the, the importance of the board and buster is for people to still keep those creative juices flowing, still working on how to put Ayrton fixtures into a rig, how to hang them on truss, where they want, how they're, where they belong, different ideas. And you can still be programming songs and one of the things that I did not foresee from the Ayrton Board and Buster is that putting these things out online is actually still gaining attention for the designers, programmers. Uh, can you talk about what happened with you? Sure. So when I was making my choice for what I wanted to do for the Ayrton Board and Buster, I was looking for an EDM song because I thought it would have the most approachability. I always want a song that has something that has hits and stabs and breaks just to kind of show off the timing a little bit. So I picked this marsh. I started off by looking at the top 100 EDM songs of all time. And I was kind of working my way back through them. And the other kind of qualification I had is I wanted something that had a music video that went along to it. And when I found this marshmallow song, it's called alone. And it's kind of the video kind of tells the story of this, of this young nerdy marshmallow guy in high school kind of getting treated poorly and, and he asks out the pretty girl in school, and she's about to say no to him. And uh, she goes into his house. She goes to his house to, to leave him a note that says she's not interested. And she sees him through the window, DJing, and it changes her perception of him. And how now he be, 
he becomes accepted at school, right? So that's kind of the short version of this of the of the music video, and it, it kind of spoke to me in that sense because I thought it was. An, I'm always looking to take what is a normal song or something and really give it a story, you know. So this song already had a story built into it a little bit, so that's why I picked it. So I did the video, and we can talk more later about kind of the steps in the video and all that. But I had been approached by the Marshall camp a couple of years ago. I think it was 2017, maybe, then when they were looking for a designer. And we put together some ideas, but at the time, I think I was doing something else. And so I didn't really approach it all that all that much, except for maybe asking some questions about, about what they were looking for. And so when I finished this video um, and put it out there, I got an email from a friend of mine who was a manager in one of the big management companies in the United States and said, hey, do you mind if I send this over to Marshmallows people? And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, I've dealt with them before a little bit. I know them. Feel free. And so he sent it over to them. And a couple hours later, I got an email that said, hey, can we get on the phone and chat? And I said, yeah, great. So we haven't done that chat yet. And we'll see if it leads to something. But I think that's that's a good example of kind of the ways in which putting yourself out there can can benefit you in this way. And it's a good way to show a client, hey, you know, if I had you as a client or if I had the budgets that you have, this is what I would do with it. You know, and that's that, that's the big thing with 3D is it really opens up the doors of what you could do if you had the opportunity to do it. Mm hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I don't know any other way, you know, I feel like our industry is changing a bit from the old guard of big time designers got big time clients, they did true design work, and then you handed it off to a programmer, and then you handed it off to an op and the programmer handed it off to an operator. And you went through this stepwise process, I think you're seeing more people that are kind of all encompassing those three roles at the same time. Yeah, we um, definitely created a turnpike here where you can just kind of bypass a lot of the traffic and you say, no, look, this is what I would do with a thousand fixtures and I, I can show it to you. And if you are brave enough to give me a shot, even though I'm 20 or 30 and I'm I'm unproven, I'm going to show you that I do have the skill set necessary. Just 10 years ago, that was a, that was a pipe dream to be able to do that. But now it sounds like I'm I'm hearing that story more and more often. I'm I'm actually seeing younger designers who are who don't necessarily have a a long laundry list of clients, but they do have some very impressive skills. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of put myself in the in the shoes of those clients. You know, if I'm looking to hire, I don't know, a camera operator, you know, and I can see what that camera operator's vision is by him showing me his work in advance then I don't have to bring him out on a gig and do it for two weeks and then decide if he's the right guy. I can make my decision in advance based on his previous work. And that's the same parallel key that, you know, you can turn to a client and say, you know, if I had the opportunity to work with you, this is what I, this is how I interpret your, you know, your music or whatever. Cause that stuff's hard to see. And as we all know, you know, the musicians are on stage, you know, so their perception, they're inside the fishbowl. Their perception is often skewed. You know, and this gives them an opportunity to see what it would look like from the audience's perspective, as we know, is the most important perspective. You know, it's the, the perspective of how it feels on stage, you know, sh shouldn't be the basis of why, you know, you make decisions about um, a production or not. It should be the perception of the audience members, you know. So this also changes, gives that medium because I've had that quite a few times in the past where I've had an artist say to me, 
hey, you know, this song feels like this when I'm on stage and I've made a viz and sent it to him and go, well, this is what I think it looks like in my, from my perspective, you know? And they'll go, oh, okay, I get that now. So it, it's helpful in that way too, of kind of giving an artist who is on stage the audience's perspective of how something looks. Yeah, it was about six years ago, I had a client who would come out to front of house and she would say, man, I really wish I could see what this looked like with me up there. Uh, at the time, I, I wasn't capable of doing that. And then after a little bit of research and some Googling, I was like, oh my God, I can do that now. I can show you what the show looks like with you up there. And I can actually modify a 3D image and you know, kind of create a 3D character out of you. And then I can kind of show you. And she still kind of lacked the the imagination to know exactly. I mean, she still wanted to actually be out of front of house while she was up there. Showing. Right. That's yeah. what she wanted. And I was, obviously, I can't do that. But yeah, we're we're so close to being able to create an actual visual concert in virtual space. Yeah. And, you know, the other reason I chose Marshmallow was he did a virtual reality show somewhere time in the last year. So I know that at least him or his management or somebody in his team is technically advanced enough to understand this idea. And I think this is where we're going to go with time. I've had a couple artists reach out to me since the quarantine started and say, you know, we've seen your 3D work and we find it interesting and we think there's some sort of information there. There's, there's some sort of concept there about, you know, a 3D concert or an online concert from the perspective of the audience. You know, we haven't fleshed out how that works all the way yet. There's, there's something there. And I think sometime in the next decade or so, this is something we're going to see is especially in the EDM culture where watching the person perform sometimes has some interest, but it's often not. That's why EDM has such large, you know, visual, visual productions is because there's not a lot to watch someone perform, you know? So maybe there is something there in 3d that is interesting for people to watch. We just kind of need the technology needs to catch up a little bit and we need to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's, I think that there, that's something we're going to see more and more with time. I agree. So anybody who's interested in starting to follow that path, kind of fill me in on your, the steps that you take. Tell me your process from picking the song to putting it online. Sure. Um, I think picking the song is important. You know, for me and my background, like I said, I'm looking for something that has, you know, timing, stabs, hits, breakdowns, something that is dynamic, you know, um, it's a lot harder for me to visualize something that is, you know, let's say down tempo electronic music or singer songwriter or something. I mean, it's, it still has its own path, but for me, picking the song is really important. Um, I did one of my other visualizations is I did a Katy Perry remix a couple years ago. Um, and the reason I picked it was at the time, you know, it was a big pop song when it came out. Um, the remix had a bunch of breaks in it and, you know, there was some visual representation I was trying to like get to. So song selection is the first step. And I think it's important. Um, the next step in the process for me is building the 3d environment. So usually I try and pick something that has some, as far as venue choice, something that has some relationship to it. So, um, you know, I being in Denver, I picked red rocks for this marshmallow video. I already had it in 3d. Um, I knew it was a good visualization. So uh, that's usually the, the second step in the process. Um, 
usually uh, what I to get to that, I'll usually go to Google 3D Warehouse and download a SketchUp file. Uh, SketchUp, then I will convert in Capture to Capture's 3D visualization. So it matters what I'm doing it on. If it's MA3D, there's kind of one process. If it's Capture, there's kind of another process. I just bought L8, which I haven't really jumped into yet, but I'm looking forward to. So step two in the process of the environment kind of changes based on what the final software choice is. Um, you know, there are benefits to each one. MA3D, I think the timing of it looks good. The beams look great. Um, it's nice and integrated. It has a high um, refresh rate and can be and looks good. But it, video can only be done via CITP, which has a resolution restriction of, I think, 360 pixels or something like that. So your video is going to look all great. Um, the reason I chose Capture for this one is because it allows NDI, which is a high-definition video transport system into 3D um, that works really good. It's made by a company called New Tech. Um, it's a free protocol. So that was my choice for Capture on this one. So once I've kind of picked the 3D environment and the software I want to use, the next step process is the lighting and video design. Usually. Um, I have some sort of concept in my mind of the lighting design right off the bat. The video design for me can be a little more challenging. There is usually limitations on um, how you can scale video in 3D, how many different sources you can have in 3D, things like that. So in the case of the marshmallow video, I did one large raster that covered all of the video panels. And then I did a second raster that covered the dream panels. Also, in this case for capture, the dream panels could not be mapped as a one image. Each panel had to get the full image, and that was just a limitation um, from capture. So, you know, I had one, I basically had one computer kicking out NDI video for the, for the main walls, and I had a second computer running out, kicking out NDI video for the dream panels. The lighting design stuff I've been doing long enough that usually when I hear a song right off the top of my head, there's some sort of lighting concept, you know, comes into mind right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And, and in the case of the airtime stuff, you know, I knew I wanted to use alien picks. I knew I wanted to use Cosmo picks somewhere. I knew I wanted to use Versa picks somewhere. They all look really good in 3D um, and they kind of match each other. All of the beam styles match each other. So they, they look good together. After the lighting and visual design, I do lighting and visual programming, which is I take a time code. So usually I'll take Ableton. I'll drop the audio into Ableton and have time code come out on the left side of the audio track. This gets a little more complicated when it comes to MA on PC because on PC without a piece of hardware doesn't take in LTC. It only takes in MIDI MIDI time code. I put a second piece of software on that computer that converts the LTC to MTC and then kick that out of a five pin. MIDI port to the computer that is doing the on PC programming. So the programming part, I mean, when it comes to the video, the video is usually pretty simple. In the case of the marshmallow video, what I really wanted is I really wanted the music video to be the basis of, and, and it to be synced to the audio, the other video elements to kind of be decided as I needed them. In this project, I used the same computer to process the video and the audio so that that MIDI time code can be used for both. So they so the video was always synced to the audio. But on one computer, I had Ableton and Resolume. They were talking to each other, and they were synced. 
the NDI output of that video goes into a different computer, which is running 3D. One of the questions I got quite a bit online is, how did you sync the video? And that, that's the answer is, on the same computer, although you can do it on separate computers if you wanted to, have Resolume or whatever your video server might be, listening to the same time code that is coming out of Ableton as your uh, on-PC system would be. Uh, once the lighting in the video is programmed to time code, the next step in the process is camera movements. Nearly all of these 3D softwares have some sort of control, DMX control of cameras. In the case of Capture, you basically just patch a 3D camera and you can control its its pan and tilt, its XYZ, some zoom, um, aspect ratios, some different things like that. So I basically make a separate cute stack that shows the camera movements and put that into the time code. Usually I'm trying to show with those camera movements, I'm trying to show off particular moments. So you'll see in the marshmallow video, I'm trying to show the Cosmo pics at the moments that they're on. I'm trying to show the alien pics at the moments that they're doing something specific. And I'm trying to make it look smooth as well. The way that you program those XYZ and pan and tilts, and you, you can kind of make it look like it's a smooth camera transition. In the case of the marshmallow video, I did three of these camera cuts. Usually what I do is one long continuous shot. In this case, what I did was I, I recorded it three times, and then I put it into post-production afterwards and edited it. So after the camera movements, the next process is screen capture. This is one that causes a lot of people some, some strife because you, you have two options here. You can either use the computer that's doing the visualization and you can capture that screen using internal software. This is the way most people do it. And it works good, assuming that you have a computer that is strong enough that its graphics processors can process both the 3D and the screen capture at the same time. Basically, it's producing um, and recording at the same time. Right. And and this used to be a big problem, basically, because GPUs weren't good enough to handle this process. If you look at older videos of mine, th th this was always the limitation, is that I couldn't have a computer that was basically strong enough to do both. And it would drop the frame rate way down. So your other option here is to take an output from a computer and, and basically route it into another computer and record the screen using a separate machine. That has its own difficulties, you know. So you usually need an external piece of hardware to make sure that the computers are seeing each other in the right resolution and so on. So in this case, I used a screen capture piece of software called OBS, but you do have to have a real beefy computer to do that. I have I own two computers that are basically meant as video servers. Um, I primarily use AI um, as my video server program. But I also use Resolume, and in this case, I use Resolume because its NDI functionality was a little better. Once I've done the screen capture, the last process is post-production editing. So once I've taken all of these videos and I've shot them, essentially, in 3D, I drag those shots back over onto a Mac, usually, and then do some sort of post-production editing and make sure the sync correct and all of that kind of stuff. And that's how I get to the final process. Now, the hard part is keeping the resolution through all of these steps. Uh, there are many places in this process that you can drop the resolution down to kind of make this easier. And what you end up with at the end is a low resolution video that doesn't look as good as it looked on the screen when you originally made it. So that's disappointing. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. So I really paid attention to that. And then both in this case and in other cases of things that I've done, I'm trying to learn this process as I go along, you know? So my goal with this 
marshmallow video was to keep it in a 4K resolution all the way to the final product, which was more difficult than I really expected at the beginning. And there are parts where the frame rate drops down a little bit below what would be true 4K resolution. But that's really the process for me. So just to kind of recap, it's, it's song selection and then 3D environment building, lighting and video design, and lighting and video programming to the time code, camera movements, screen capture, and then post-production. So fill me in on some of the hardware that you're using for this. It sounds like you've got at least three or four computers uh, working together to make this happen. Yes, I own many, many computers, and they kind of each have specialized purposes. At least at the beginning, what I would tell people certainly is you really want one computer running your emulator software, MA or whatever it may be, and a separate computer running your visualizer. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but you really want a dedicated graphics machine to do your MA3D. In this case, I have one computer doing MA on PC. I have another computer doing capture. I have another computer doing Ableton and Resolume and creating the NDI, one of the NDI streams. And then I have a fourth computer creating another NDI stream. So I'm using four machines total. You know, it can be done more reasonably on two computers. And I, I've, I was on two computers forever. And I think that's really the key to people that are getting started is it doesn't really have to be the best computer in the world. You just need a little bit of separation and understand enough networking to get it done. The real thing that kind of, for me, was kind of an aha moment in this process was syncing the video using the time code source on the same computer that, that Ableton is on. And, you know, time code can be intimidating, but like it's, it's no different than any other signal source, really. You know, it, it comes from one place and you just need to make sure that it's going everywhere it needs to go. And if it's internal on the same machine, you know, you just have to set your IP addresses accordingly. And if it's external, you know, you just need to make sure that you have an input source and an output source that are matching up and they're on the same frame rates and so on. So the first time I did time code, it was it was intimidating. And now I, I feel really confident with that process, you know. So Capture is doing the visualization. On PC is doing the console emulation. Ableton is doing the time code source. And Resolume is doing the video source. That's amazing. And even with all of those computers, you're talking about two outlets. It's uh, it's far less than in, uh, having to put up an entire rig and hire 10 guys and get all the gear out there. And you all you've done is get some computers and uh, link them together and plug them into the wall. You you don't need, you know, 1.1 gigawatts of power to do a mega rig. No, and the and the and the cost of the visualizers I think is very reasonable. I mean, like we talked about MA3D is free. And, you know, all the different visualizer companies, Capture, LA, Realizer, Dependence, you know, the main visualizers, they're all, they're all reasonably priced in my opinion, especially if they come the ability to make paperwork as well. And, you know, the real limitation here is that for MA3D to output ArcNet, you need to have a piece of hardware, which I have two old MA1 NSPs in here to open up parameters for me. And that's the only real, you know, cost associated with this process. And that, you know, that that's just an MA, that's an MA thing. You know, a lot of people have um, command wings or whatever it is to open number of parameters you need. And in the case of the marshmallow video, that was my real limitation. I really had to pay attention to what fixtures do I need extended modes for. The dream panels in this case, I actually only 
patched one of them in the software and there's 30 of them or so in the show and they're all patched to the same address. So there are some tricks in there to kind of save on parameters, you know, um, I knew I needed the alien picks in a, in, in a high mode because there's so many attributes to them. They, they don't do much in a low mode, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, Cosmo picks I did in a low mode. I don't, I didn't have individual control pixels in that case. Um, so I kind of went through, it took me quite a, a couple of days actually to figure out the best way to get all of those parameters in there considering the limitations. Uh, one of the things I thought was really impressive was the, the use of the alien picks where there's a, a couple different sections in the breakdown where there's 16 hits and on each hit, one alien picks does one thing. And then it looks yeah. like you had, you had chosen 16 alien picks for those 16 hits long before you even started hanging the rig. Correct. I originally had more than that. And then when that section of the song programming came along, I broke it down into 32 of them, I believe, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when I, when it comes to time coding song, the first thing I kind of do is I sit down and listen to it and I take notes and I kind of say, okay, here's this, you know, this bridge is four bars, you know, this section is real long and then the hits come here. And I kind of, make a plan, like a, you know, an outline plan of what I want to show at these individual moments. Usually I want to show the video at a particular moment. Usually I want to show, you know, the strobes at an individual moment. So, um, that, that was intentional, you know, and I, I try to use fours, sixes and eights a lot of times, because especially for EDM, it seems to work out with the timing as much as possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that GDTF is going to be able to help you out more and more with with your multi instance fixtures? If it if it really comes to the place where it gets used a lot, it could be huge for three D viz stuff because we're already seeing. I mean, when I used to build MA three D profiles on my own, you know, it'd be me and and somebody at ACT trying to figure out these details as we went along, and um, or me and or somebody at Capture, you know. And GDTF is really going to take that part of the process out. I always found it interesting when talking to people in the manufacturing sector that, you know, the console manufacturers thought that the fixture manufacturers should dictate how the profiles work and what should happen. And then the same was true in the opposite direction. Um, Nobody really took the lead on what information needs to be in a profile for it to be used appropriately. Um, and GDTF is going to kind of be the middleman there where it's going to have 3D information, it's going to have profile information, and they're all going to be in one place um, and still be able to be editable. You know, we're starting to see some GDTF fixtures out there. Um, it doesn't do much yet, but I think it will with time. And we're going to look back and say, oh, remember when we had to build all of our profiles from scratch and figure all of this stuff out, you know, our, our, <laughs> ourselves, you know, eventually that responsibility will be put on the manufacturing, the manufacturers of the fixtures to make sure that they work appropriately with consoles, you know, mm-hmm. and visualizers and so on. Yeah. We kind of ran into a, uh, a pissing match where everybody tried to, uh, tried to standardize and then try and push their standard onto everybody. And like, no, look, we've standardized it. So the zero needs to be Iris open and full needs to be Iris closed. And then, the next company would be like, nah, we have too many designers. They don't like that. They want the opposite. So that's the standard. And now we've, yeah. I think we've finally worked out the bugs where we're going to 
We're going to try one more time to really standardize some options. I mean, I could do an entire podcast with you on why I think certain profiles should be written a particular <laughs> way for the benefit of their designers and operators. Um, you know, <laughs> when I've interacted with a lot of people in the manufacturing sector, what I find the most interesting is the logic as to why they make a profile a particular way is often things I don't consider, or it is parts of the of our industry that I don't get involved with, you know? So what, what seems to me like a, like a silly illogical choice for why a profile was written. If I talk to the guy that built that, that profile, he'll explain it to me and I'll go, Oh, that makes sense. It's a theater. There's a theater reason as to why this is done. Or, you know, when I explain to them why I don't like three strobe channels and why I think one strobe channel is just as effective, they go, well, but more options are better. And I'm like, yeah, until you have to clone from one strobe channel to three strobe channels, and then more options aren't better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hopefully GDTF will allow us to, and and the MA3 and the way that MA3 is going to be able to clone information from certain attributes to other attributes that aren't of the same type, I think is going to be really helpful in this, in this particular instance. Um, I remember at... LDI, I had dinner with uh, one of the Martin guys who worked on the Axiom, you know, and he, one of the things he said to me was, no, no fixture that I make will ever have more than one mode from this day forward. And I said, really? Uh, with the exception of pixel fixtures. But he said, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you put what you need in the light and you put what you need in the profile and you make sure everything is in there and you think about it a lot and you plan out what is needed. And then you stop because a lot of the problems that they get from the manufacturing sector is, Oh, I want the light to do this. Oh, it does that. You're not in the right mode. Or so, you know, I, people, the point is more people are thinking about this stuff and how this affects the final user. Um, I think one of the strongest examples I have of kind of an improper choice in this example is the Martin axiom has a mode on it or has a, uh, has a default on it that says that the color flags will snap the first 15% of the DMX in all directions because the first 15% of the flags don't look great. Well, that's a good idea. However, making it default to on means a lot of people will run effects over this light and think that it's stepping when it should be fading. Um, because they don't read the manual and they don't know this is an option. And then you turn Mm -hmm. this option off and it's fine. Mm -hmm. So my point is it's not necessarily that this was a bad choice, but the defaulted to on was a bad choice. Um, because you get people that use it once, they don't know any better. They, they think it doesn't, that the light isn't performing correctly. And then they go, I don't like that light and they move on. Um, so you know, that's, that's an example of ways in which I think the manufacturing sector needs to listen to the final users and, and then kind of say, okay, well, we learned a lesson here. Um, a lot of people will just default to thinking that the light is broken than thinking that it just needs a reset or a, a mode change or a, they'll just, uh, it happens all the time. I remember, especially with, the, I want to say it was the Mac 700s that defaulted to be the lamp at 80% and you had to go into the fixtures setting and say, okay, no, seriously run the lamp at hundred percent. And I, right. I got, to, I think I was at a venue not terribly long ago where the, he had been running his, his lamps at 80% for, for several years. 
And I got right. to be the one to show him like, no, you can, here you go. I just up, I just made your entire rig 20% brighter by, uh, right. by showing you the, an option. Uh, it gets really tricky for some people. Yeah. And you know, yeah, I think maybe the, the manufacturing sector needs to consider the fact that we have a lot of people out here in our industry that they're not going to read the manual, you know, um, what, what, used to be a high-end light is now going to be used in all sorts of applications that aren't just the top, you know, 10% of users anymore. So, you know, they paying attention to some of this stuff in profiles is important. Um, I, I always found it funny, you know, the, uh, the hog guys will tell you that high-end systems lights have great profiles, you know, but the MA guys will tell you that the hog lights have difficult profiles. You know, it's that the manufacturers seem to pay attention to how their consoles talk to their lights. Um, but we're not always all that lucky to have the same manufacturers of consoles and lights at the same time. In fact, it's rare. So, you know, it's, it's important. I think GDTF will really be the middleman there of, okay, you know, the, the manufacturers of the consoles and the manufacturers of the fixtures sometimes are the same and sometimes are not. But there's a, there's a middleman there to make sure that the profiles are working as intended. So it sounds like you've got plenty of time to be at home, kind of looking over your fixture profiles and your 3D visualization and uh, making sure that everything's the way it needs to be, the way that you like it. Yep. I'm, I'm taking this time at home to learn some new things. Um, I'm trying out L8. Um, I want to try Dependence, which is kind of a new visualizer on the market. I have, it may not be all that new, although it's fairly new to me. So I'm using this time to kind of challenge myself on some new softwares and some new programming. I'll probably do a little jumping into MA3 here now that the new update is out and it seems like there's some actual usability in the software. For me, this time is, is great. It is a bit of a relief and a bit of a, of a time to challenge myself, you know? I mean, yeah, I miss the work and I miss the relationships with the, with the staff and all that stuff, but... I'm trying to take this as an opportunity, you know, to, to grow and be better at my craft. Right on. That sounds like you're making very good use of your time. Yeah, you too. I've been, I've been listening to your podcasts lately. I really enjoy them. Um, I particularly enjoyed the ADHD one with Roger and the Mike Cooper. Uh, <laughs> disagreements one I thought was great. Um, you know, I really think you're doing a good service of, of getting these conversations out to the people that work in our industry and talking about all these different, talking about all of these different things. I don't know if, if, if people that are getting into the industry have any ability to learn these things in, in ways other than just the podcast and, and so on, you know, there are so many more options of ways to learn our industry now than there were 10 years ago, than there were 20 years ago. And I think it's great. You know, it's all means a benefit to our industry in every way. I fully agree. I've really had to step out of my normal, my normal role of uh, the handshakes and the flying to see people and going visit them at shows. To I have to condense it through my my laptop and my microphone now. That's those are my tools now, and uh, that's what we got to do to yeah. get the words out there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Andy. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it.